Hello, and welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. Except we finished the Bible, so now we're talking about stories that seem like they should be in there, but simply aren't. My name is Nico Bakulich. I'm Lauren O'Neill. And let's get biblical. Let's get biblical. Before we do, we have to lay a few ground rules down, such as this is not a Christian Bible study podcast. It's not for children. And uh, I'm the the ex-Christian. I was raised Presbyterian. I'm now an atheist. And I'm the non-believing sort of Jew. Lauren. Yes. What are we doing here? We are doing a special guest episode with a very special guest. May I introduce the fabulous, glorious musician, visual artist, and Nico's mom, Sarah Michael. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you. It's the yeah. first time we're meeting, so it's, <laughs> it's really great to finally get a chance to sit down with you. I think you know, I've heard you, a lot of good things. I so. think you two will get along well. Okay. Um, we are at Nico's parents' house for the holiday. We wanted to record a Hanukkah episode for Hanukkah. We have... In this very house, somebody who celebrated Hanukkah growing up, so we're doing an ep. It might sound a little weird because we're not in our normal studio and not using our normal equipment, but it's fine. You'll get over it. Anyway, Sarah, we will ask you as we ask all our guests, what is your religious background? I was raised a Reformed Jew in Flint, Michigan in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And as a kid, I didn't, you know, I was sort of neutral. I went to everything, Sunday school and Hebrew school and services and everything. But then when I was a young teenager, I really got into it. I was very serious, and I taught in Hebrew school, and I studied all kinds of stuff, and I um, thought I wanted to be a rabbi. I was just really excited about all that. And I made the, um, you know, the really brave move of going to the rabbi and saying, I want to be a rabbi. And... He said, well, um, <clears throat> well, women can't do that, but you can light the candles on Friday night. Oh, how nice. Which precipitated me out of Judaism and out of religion, for which I'm actually quite grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, sexism. <laughs> yeah, well, it's effective. So what, when you were getting really into it, what appealed to you about it? I really loved all the ethical guidance. You know, the religion of my youth was not even very much about God. I mean, it was, you know, the prayers all had God, God, God. But the matter that got discussed in sermons and in in Sunday school was all ethics. It was like, well, what do you do if this? And, you know, what should we be thinking about that? And and it was all very um, discussion-based. You know, you were allowed to say actually what you thought with nobody, uh, you know, nobody usually. Um, coming down too badly on you. (laughs) That's a very foreign idea to me, um, having been raised Christian. I mean, not that I went to a very hardline church. I went to a a mainline church, but like, there's very little room for, like, if there's an ethical question, they pretty much tell you what to do. There's not a whole lot of room for discussion. Yeah, discussion was kind of the point, you know. I mean, and people would often... um, pose these ethical questions as if someone could provide an answer. And the answer was always, well, in 16-something-something, Rabbi something-something said this, but then in 16-something-else, Rabbi something-else said that. And then in the 1700s, there were these seven different opinions on the question, and they would give you a gigantic history of all these factoids. 
and no no direction. You know, it was like, well, what do you think? What's right? You know, or that's a hard one and nobody knows what's right. Starting at like what age were you were you having these types of discussions? I'd say maybe 11, 12. I mean, before that, it was just, you know, stories and holidays. And and did you have a bat mitzvah? Oh, I did. Absolutely. Okay. I wasn't sure. I know like they that they didn't used to do it for girls, right? You know, I think the reform synagogue has pretty okay. much always. But I, I don't even know if conservatives do it now. I mean, and because you can now be a female rabbi in reform Judaism, can't you? You can indeed. People yeah. people are always telling me when I say stuff like that, when I say, oh, I couldn't be a rabbi. And so I said goodbye to it. They said, well, you could now. I said, well, yeah, yeah, but you're 50, they missed their chance. 50 years okay. too late, you know? <laughs> um, was there any appeal to you in the rituals or the holidays? That's hard to say. You know, when I was a little kid, I loved going to services and people singing and lighting candles. And I actually liked the palaver in a language I didn't understand. You know, it was it was kind of hypnotic. Uh, I don't know. Um, but as I got older, no, not so much. And I, I came to really, really dislike most of the holidays with a few notable exceptions. What are the exceptions? <laughs> Well, I actually, please say Hanukkah. Please say Hanukkah. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not Hanukkah. I really like Passover. Okay, the story's great, um, and the the rituals are actually kind of interesting, and they involve food, which is always good. And I do like Purim, although I I'm kind of oppressed by the disnified version of the Purim story sure. that we usually get. And I like the idea of having one day a year that's the Day of Atonement. And you prepare ahead of time, and on that day you do your atonement, and on the very next day you just get over it. <laughs> I think I think that's a that's the right proportion of atonement in a year, one day. One day. Yeah, it does seem like a like a good system. Are you sure you wouldn't rather up that to weekly? Because we could do weekly. <laughs> that's too much. Too thanks, much. Thanks for the offer, but I'm actually pretty well behaved. Okay. <laughs> I don't need it weekly. I think you'll find that if you atone every week. <laughs> You probably commit more sins than you think you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Catholics did that with confession, and it doesn't seem to be going that great. I don't know. I don't know. You know, we learned about other religions. My At my synagogue, they were just absolutely rabid about making sure we were super informed about all the different religions. And the the business of, of confessing every week or confessing every this, you know, just like, Wow. God, once a year practically kills me. I don't think I could do it more often. Yeah, I was raised Protestant, so no confession. And that always seemed like just the worst. Po I could not imagine talking about my sins, which I saw as extremely horrible. You know, as a child, you think, oh, like I lied to my sister, like I'm going to burn in hell, you know. And telling that to like an old man in like a booth, I would have been. But what if he offered you the chance to like exercise that that sin, you know, to get it off your back? absolve you from it and just do some hail marys or whatever sure. maybe eh, maybe i would have gotten into it <laughs> it is kind of an ocd ritual to do those little rosary prayers i don't know and then you can officially not worry about that anymore yeah maybe yeah i just worried about it all the time it's like every day was atonement day slash no day was atonement day so it was just oh well you just have to take up the jewish day of atonement and you know you don't have to tell anyone it's nobody's business it's just between you and god and uh, and it's not about sins 
It's just really anything that's bothering you, anything that you, you know, you did badly or you treated someone badly. I mean, it's not about going to hell or anything. Right. It's just, you know, if you've got any junk in your head that you need to get rid of before you start Junk in your trunk, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Junk on your conscience. Yeah. Um, Speaking of going to hell, like what were you taught about the afterlife? Wasn't part of the teaching at all. I mean, people said, uh, you know, that was one of those big questions. Is there an afterlife and blah, blah, blah. And basically the answer is nobody knows. Take your pick, whatever you want. Nobody cared what happened after you died. They cared how you lived when you were alive, which I find not unreasonable. Yes, um, I agree. And I think <laughs> I think it's actually like one of the hugest problems in our country that people are like, the people in power are really focused on death and what happens after death and that this world doesn't matter. Kind of a problem when you're running the world. Um, you speak several languages. You've studied several languages, including Arabic. Mm. How appealing was it to you to study Hebrew? I ask as somebody who studied it myself just because it seemed cool. <laughs> Do you know, I think Hebrew school started in fourth grade, something like that. And it was kind of fun learning the letters. And then I did what every kid did, which is we wrote notes, you know, with English sounds and Hebrew letters. Mm -hmm. And then the teachers wouldn't know, you know, what you were writing. But um, (laughs) Um, the teacher's not at Hebrew school. The teacher's not of Hebrew school. Even the teachers in Sunday school wouldn't know, you know, Hmm. because lots of lots of Sunday school teachers were women and lots of of the women and probably lots of the men it, it couldn't read Hebrew, didn't know any Hebrew. I mean, it was in reform. It was just not a, th- a thing. They just mouthed prayers. Did I like it? I enjoyed the beginnings of grammar a lot because I love grammar. I hated vocabulary. I hated reading, you know, the Torah. I hate it because it's so, um, gosh, what? Well, you've used all the words. It's so misogynistic. It's so nonsensical. It's so full of begats and and, and, and idiot rules for you can eat this part of a hoof and you can't eat that ear. You know, just so that drove me a little nuts. And then oh, maybe I was 13 or 14 and I found a book of modern Hebrew poetry in facing page translation. Yes. That's and that was I like a whole new thing. Hebrew it was poetry, just like, yeah. ah, this is good. But it's been just a really, really long time since I've had anything to do with Hebrew. And recently I played um, with a local band that was playing Sephardic music and we practiced at their house and they were Hebrew school teachers or they had a child in Hebrew school and there were all these flashcards plastered on the walls. And I realized I don't even know some of the letters anymore. Really? It's amazing. I mean, (laughs) it's gone. Interesting. So when you started to study really hard or like we're interested in becoming a rabbi mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff did you study the the talmud and the mishnah or did you like read rabbinic commentaries or anything like that um you know in flint there was a reform synagogue and a conservative synagogue and neither of them taught talmud or mishnah particularly um but there were commentaries and there were uh, books of basically they're basically ethics exercises Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's very funny, you know. I mean, what if you were in a concentration camp and in order to save your life, you had to, who knows? Uh, something that was on the mind of, I assume, a lot of Jews at that oh, yeah, period yeah. in time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a constant In the one, 50s you know. and 60s, yeah. It yeah. wasn't that far in the past, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that kind of thing. And And you were expected to say, well, you know, 
Rabbi so-and-so said that this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that that, but it was all done in English, and we read in English. And <laughs> What was your exposure to, you mentioned there was like a conservative yeah. presence. What was your exposure to them? Um, actually minimal, you know. There was hardly any, what do you call it, cross-pollinization? <laughs> Pollination? Ec- ecumenism? <laughs> yeah, not really. There was kind of a real feeling that they were, you know, incredibly backward and quite different. And and then when you come down to it, they really weren't. I think I ended up taking a class over there, and they were just like everybody else. But, yeah, not really. It was very um, polarized. Hmm. In a very tiny Jewish community, right <laughs> in Flint, Michigan. Right, I'm thinking I you've I've definitely heard you tell stories about like getting bullied for being Jewish. Like oh at yeah, school. yeah, ongoing. No kidding. Yeah. Um, so it it is kind of like surprising to hear that you wouldn't all kind of over overlook your differences in the face of that. But then again. Nobody ever overlooks their differences. <laughs> you would think. But I have to say, I think we lived in a part of town that was not normal for Jewish families. Mm. Um, my dad was a doctor and his practice was in kind of a working class neighborhood. And we lived in the house with a practice. So in a funny way, I, I mean, I think there were schools in Flint where there were more Jewish kids, but I was not in them. Mm. So how about that? <laughs> how about it? You tell me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, mm. <laughs> it was a long time ago. So I'm going to try a little something, which is what we in the business call a segue. Okay. Do you remember celebrating Hanukkah when you were a kid? Absolutely. Was yes. it? What did you know about the story of Hanukkah when when you were young? Yeah. So <clears throat> the Jews were, as is traditional and customary, oppressed by somebody or other, mm-hmm. and the Maccabees, who are a giant clan of Jews, mm-hmm. um, safe, so far so good. Safe guess. Engaged in, in some kind of military action against the whoever the oppressor was, and they succeeded, and they reclaimed the temple which had been taken and, I suppose, you know, polluted in some way by whoever it was. Now, this is my childhood take on this. Mm-hmm. Of course. And, uh, and and that was really wonderful and really righteous. And they went into the temple and in among the manure and the b- broken bodies and whatever else was in there, <laughs> they found that the eternal light, which is a sort of little oil lamp that hangs over the, the bima, you know, uh, was miraculously still a light. And some tragedy would befall if this thing ever went out. And they found a little bit of oil uh, in the back storage room to pour in there to keep it going. But it was like for oil for one day. And it was going to take them eight days to get to wherever the other oil was and back again. Or to make new oil. Or or whatever it was to get some more. And so they said, well, let's do it. And they put the one day's oil in and they headed out for eight days. And when they got back, the thing was still lit. Hooray. Hooray. (laughs) To to fill in some of the details there. The the someone or other who was oppressing them was the Seleucid Empire, which was a Greco-Persian uh, empire that followed Alexander the Great and his, uh, his territories got split up. Um, and it was taking place in the like 160s BC, so after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. Um, the big complaint was that the Seleucids were forcing Jews to... Hellenize. Hellenize, not just culturally, but 
also religiously and trying to get them to, you know, worship idols, Greek gods, whatever. Um, and then they they not only looted the temple they and took all the, you know, precious metals and everything, but they also set up altars to Greek gods in there, which is... I see. Pretty much the worst. Wasn't, As the Bible says, wasn't horse manure and, 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 and broken body parts. It, uh, it may have been spiritual <laughs> manure. <laughs> spiritual manure. Oh, okay. Um, and then, yeah. So the Jews rebel, led by uh, Judah Maccabee. Um, and Maccabee, of course, is not a surname; it's a title. It means hammer. So he's he's Judah Maccabee. Yeah, he's Judah the hammer. Judah the hammer. Yeah. Um, his brothers were also known as Maccabee, but they also had their own titles. I just learned this while doing research for this episode that his brother Yochanan had the title Gadi, which means my fortune or my success. So his brother's name is literally anglicized as John Gadi. <laughs> you can hear more about this. We did an episode on the books of First and Second Maccabees. Um, and John Gadi's betrayal of the... I don't even say Carmine family. crime family. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know <laughs> which one. Sorry. Um, uh, but yeah, so then then they they re they win. They kick the Seleucids out for like a hundred years before Rome takes them over or whatever. And this was immediately after, by the way, Egypt owned them. So that Jerusalem was really just being passed from empire to empire yeah. over and over again. Yeah, but they did have some autonomy for for a little while in there due to the Maccabean revolt and. They they went into the temple and and rededicated it, and that's the word Hanukkah comes from Hanach, which is to dedicate. Aha, yeah, aha. Looked that up also. Thank you. I have no concept. <laughs> so that's uh, that's the basic background of it. Mac first and second Maccabees actually like they just briefly mention it. They don't use the word Hanukkah. It's not really in a canonical text it's not until centuries later that rabbis start writing about it in commentary texts like the Mishnah and the Talmud and everything um, and even then like at first it's it's very briefly mentioned and it's just like oh yeah Hanukkah it's you know it's eight days long and you're not allowed to mourn or fast and it like doesn't even mention the the like the menorah. provenance of it yeah yeah, yeah which because it's just kind of a minor a minor thing. Our buddy Flavius Josephus wrote about it. Yes, but not in great depth. In fact, he called it the Festival of Lights. And he said it started because when the Maccabees retook the temple, they were they had been unable to celebrate Sukkot because they were on a uh, like military campaign against the Seleucids. Um, and they didn't have the necessary materials or it wasn't a appropriate time they didn't, they didn't or place time to do to... it. So... When they got to the temple, they celebrated Sukkot. Late. Late. And that's why Hanukkah is eight days. But it, I think, as far as I know, Josephus is the only one who says that. I think so, but it became a, at least a popular interpretation yeah. of why Hanukkah is eight days. You know, I mean, there's... What, the, what, what, what about the eight days it took to get the oil? I don't know. Josephus didn't get the memo. I don't oh, know. Oh, God. Okay. I yeah. mean, that's like a miracle, right? I mean, that's like a, a description of... Right. No, I mean, that was basically it. God made one day of oil last eight days in order to signify thank you for saving my temple or whatever. And eight days now we know is exactly how long it takes to press and consecrate olive oil. Olive oil <laughs> or something. Really? Well, or, that's that's the that's how the story goes. Yeah, that they, they needed to make more or they needed to maybe they needed to go get it somewhere or I whatever. Yeah. 
Um, so let's let's take a break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about how to celebrate Hanukkah. Yeah, it'll be instructional. It'll be yeah, fun. Yeah, it'll be just like a step-by-step guide. Yeah. <laughs> Very but, dry. But with a twist. <laughs> okay? And you're going to like this. I don't know what it is yet, but we'll I know you're going to like it. We'll figure it out like on the it. break. Goodbye. Okay, bye. Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nico. And we have with us Nico's mom, Sarah. Hello. Hi there. And we are talking about Hanukkah. (laughs) Sarah, Hmm. what was Hanukkah like for you growing up? Oh, dear. Well, my parents really made an extraordinary effort. I mean, my mom hung up these silly paper garlands and we pinned Jewish stars to the curtains and and we we had a menorah we lit the menorah but really Hanukkah was just this booby prize for not getting Christmas now I know from (laughs) some light research that Hanukkah kind of became there was kind of a concerted effort to make it the Jewish alternative to Christmas. Um, did you experience any, and I know that happened kind of in the latter half of the 20th century. Did you experience, did it change over your lifetime or was it the same? You know, past, you know, p- past maybe 12 or 13 years old, I don't think we bothered with it much. Hmm. So I don't, I can't tell you. Interesting. I can't tell you. But I know that at the time I was a little kid, they were just making a big deal. You know, a little present every day and latkes and uh, cookies in the shape of dreidels and, you know, all the, everything like Christmas except just no Christmas tree, no Santa Claus. Got it. And, um, So for for (laughs) any listeners who may not know, can you explain menorahs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Candle holder with um, eight, well, nine, uh, eight slots for candles to mark each night and one extra in the middle to hold the servant candle, the shamash, the shamash. that you use to light the other candles. In the first night of Hanukkah, you light the shamash and one candle. And the second night, you light two candles, etc., etc., until you get all eight going. And do you have to say a special prayer? Indeed, yes. Do you still remember the prayer? Oh, it's the same as um, 
it's the same as Friday night, except instead of uh, Lahadlik Nershel Shabbat, the lights of Shabbos, it's Lahadlik Nershel Hanukkah. Well, there you have it. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a beginning on it, too. But yeah, I mean, it's very perfunctory. Um, praise, uh, blessed be you, Lord our God, who commanded us by way of doing good things to light the lights of Hanukkah. Great. Right to the point. And then uh, <laughs> what, uh, what did you eat? Eat. Well, latkes, potato mm -hmm. pancakes, which are inevitably served with either sour cream or applesauce or sometimes both. And which did you prefer? The ultimate Apple question. Apple sour cream for children. Ew. Um, <laughs> you know, your son still doesn't like sour cream. I, good for him. I mean, I, I like it, but, you oh. know, who needs the calories? Suddenly you tried to flip it on him <laughs> and it comes back at you. This is what you get. And what else? I don't remember exactly. Did you have soufganiot? No, never heard of it. They're, they're donuts. They're like jelly-filled donuts. But no. I guess I guess the idea is with both with both latkes and these donuts that it's it's fried in oil. Yes, which is the miraculous thing that lasted eight days. So Wait, that's I see. So to celebrate the fact that there wasn't enough of something, you, you just use, use a lot. Of you it. use too much of it yeah. to cook food. I mm -hmm. just think you're all just making way too much of it. I have no idea. I mean. <laughs> No, I was joking because that doesn't oh, make oh. any sense. It makes no but. sense. Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, it, I don't think Hanukkah was a big food um, holiday. Mm. What it had was dreidels. Okay. You know, little tops. Yes. And they, what's, they, Okay, what's the deal with dreidels? Dreidels, are, dreidels are a German thing. They're, I, they're not like a, yeah, a Jewish thing. It's like a Yiddish thing. I yeah. learned about dreidels like in public school. You know, we learned about whatever, like Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever. And... We, you know, we, we spun dreidels, we learned the nun, hey, vav, sheen, whatever it is, um, and I still have no idea what they have to do with the Hanukkah story. Nothing. 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 Absolutely nothing. Okay. I mean, the Hanukkah story is the most unengaging piece of work ever, and so all kinds of things have accreted onto the holiday just to make it sort of colorful. Great. Just like gelt, right? I mean, like gelt is another gelt is another Eastern German, European thing, German yeah. Yiddish thing, yeah, yeah. Because but the combination of dreidels and gelt is deadly. I okay. mean, here's the thing. Oh yeah, so, okay. So you give each kid a bag of gelt, which is like little chocolate coins covered mm -hmm. in foil, and then you give them this gambling toy. <laughs> so you spin the dreidel, and depending on which everybody, first of all, everybody puts like a betting, like poker or something. Uh -huh. Everybody puts a coin into the middle. And then you spin the dreidel, and if you get one letter, you have to put more in, and if you get another letter, you get to take it all out, and if you get another letter, nothing happens. You know, it's like that. But the inevitable result of playing dreidel with your gelt is that one child ends up with all of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just, it just, that's just... Nobody knows how to quit when they're ahead because they're children. And right. also... Well, the game is not quitting when you're ahead. Right, okay. I mean, the game is as long as you've got one, I could get the thing that says take it all. Got know? it. But um, that doesn't happen, mm. and one kid always ends up with all of it, mm. which makes all the other kids massively unhappy. Mm. It's a little capitalism simulator. It is a little simulator, or it's like a gambling training. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's just the weirdest thing ever. So when you were a kid, were you the kid who got it all, or were you the upset kid? I don't remember. Okay. Honestly, I don't. I mean, it probably is pretty even, because it, it is kind of a random thing. Mm -hmm. But I know that I was a kid who quickly decided that I didn't like that game mm -hmm. and refused to play it, so. <laughs> Held on to your guilt. Hell, yeah, I'd rather eat it than give it away to my sister. You know? If I could take it back a step. Sorry. We were talking about um, making Hanukkah sort of like a proxy for Christmas. Mm -hmm. 
and making it very visible. Like you were talking about your parents stringing up uh, decorations, decorations yeah. and putting stars on the curtains and stuff like that. Um, in the earliest rabbinical codification of the celebration of, of, of Hanukkah, an important thing is that your menorah is in your front window or on your porch. And it's there to like to advertise, essentially. That is like it is at ah. least partially about a public display of Judaism. But it's not sort of meant as um, to show Gentiles, right? It's it's assuming that you're in that you're living with other Jews and that you're all kind of putting this thing up, right? I do. You know, I don't know what the assumption is. I mean, I you, could, you could probably assume that, but at, at the very least, a part of the earliest description of it is a public display of Judaism. So I think that's mildly interesting. There aren't many holidays like that. That's true. Um, I also saw... What? Aside from Christmas and Easter and... No, yeah, but for <laughs> for Jews. Oh, no. And I, I don't know anybody who did that. I mean, maybe maybe people did. I mean, we didn't have a front window, so I couldn't tell you, but I wouldn't do it now. And my friend, I have a friend here who we've had a discussion and said, no, I wouldn't do this publicly. I wouldn't invite, um, I wouldn't invite the attention. Hmm. Even, even in 2019 in Santa Cruz, California. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That might just be me, but. Would you have said that same thing five, ten years ago? No. Okay. No. Fair. So also speaking of, like, early rabbinical takes on Hanukkah. And this actually ties in a little bit to what um, you were talking about earlier, that the rabbi said that you could light candles on Fridays. Mm. Um, Also included in those descriptions of early Hanukkah procedures, women are not only allowed to light the candles, but encouraged to. Yeah. Because of the fact that women were involved in the Maccabean victory. How so? Well, supposedly the story of Judith comes into play here, that Holofernes was a general of... Oh, of the Seleucid army. Of the Seleucid army. Okay. And that her, you know, seduction and... Decapitation. Decapitation was like a big part of the Maccabean victory against the Seleucids. And so like Judith's victory is like now as part of that whole holiday, we celebrate women's role in the as as jewish warriors as I well i didn't supposedly. realize that was judith a part of your hanukkah celebration oh no okay oh no oh, okay <laughs> oh no i mean i really gave you the whole text earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um nico do you know is that something that started early and has has gotten less frequent or if it's the opposite or i don't i don't know i don't know all i know is that that was one of the things that the rabbis said early on was that this is a partly a women's holiday and it celebrates women as warriors because Judith chopped off Holofernes' head. head and so she was elemental to the victory of the Maccabees. I like that the heroes then in in the story are Judah and Judith, which are just Hebrew for Jewish. Jew and Jewess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Male and female. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I could see you might leave out that part of the story for kids because it does involve, you know, both the existence of sex and of cold-blooded murder. Well, 
not really the existence of sex, right? Because she doesn't actually have sex with him. True, but the whole story of the seduction relies on acknowledging that. I guess. And it's not like a tent spike through the head like that other dude. That's messed yeah, up. Dial yeah, Dial when she did the tent spike. <laughs> you, you, Sarah's making a face like I don't know what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, that was not my religion. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> did you not learn about any any gruesome violence? Pretty much not. Hmm. Pretty much not. Even Purim, you know, where the where the ending is, the ending and, is and they have three days to gruesome. slaughter, and yes. then they got five more days to slaughter. That was never there. Yes. No. And, they... and Esther saved the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Kaboom! Smiley, smiley, clap, clap, clap. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of. That one has a had a particularly bloody ending. That when we were reading it, we were like, "Okay, <laughs> the, this was cool," and I'm a little confused, but okay, we're going with it. Well, I totally understand the impulse. You know, I mean, if you'd been through that, you might like to slaughter, of course, a fair number of people yourself. No, I, but I should say that we certainly heard about mm, violence directed at Jews, hmm. just not violence perpetrated done by perpetrated by Jews. Yeah, absolutely. So what? What Hanukkah traditions did you two celebrate together? I know that it wasn't extensive, but there was something. Because I know we have a a crazy menorah in our apartment that's like a... We do have sort of like a modernist art, art glass. Art menorah. Yeah, menorah. Um, but that's awesome. <laughs> um, We lit candles and said the little prayer and you... When I was really young, you gave me little bags of gelt. True. And that was No gambling, it. though. Well, we had dreidels around. I don't know if we ever actually played dreidel. I'm not sure if we ever did. I maybe played once as a, as a child. Right. And you had exactly the reaction I would anticipate. Well, this game sucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I just looked up what the letters on the dreidel mean. Do you remember? Uh, Gimel is take it all, I think. Oh, okay. Oh, you mean the the phrase? The phrase. A great miracle happened here. Yeah, but Ooh, I don't remember the look year. Look at that. Hebrew. A great miracle happened there. There, sorry, it's here, there. Neskadol Hayasham. But then apparently in Israel, it's a great miracle happened here, and so instead of a sheen, there's a pay for po. Well, you know that I just dredged that out of the, the lower reaches <laughs> of the Paleolithic See, era. It's, it's still in there somewhere. <laughs> it's still in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, as my Hebrew teacher in college told me, "Be Israel, Hanukkah is no big deal." <laughs> yeah. Well, it was no big deal anywhere yeah. until sometime in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, do you know how your parents celebrated it before the 1950s? Oh gosh. I mean, my father's family was grindingly poor. I don't think they celebrated it at all. Hmm. They were busy trying to pay the rent and hmm. eat food. And my mother's family, my gr- her father was Jewish, and he married a Christian who converted. And she was not a good transmitter, transmitter of culture because she simply didn't know any of this stuff. So I have no idea, but I'm sure it was minimal. Hmm. She was a nice German lady, and she said, latkes. I mean, I make potato pancakes, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's potatoes and oil. It tastes good. It doesn't matter how you make them. Oh, it has to have onion. Oh, it has to have onion. Excuse yeah. me. Sorry. Excuse me. I mean, even in the Midwest, it has to have onion. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what do you think of the business of these these ersatz inflated holidays that are trying to compete with Christmas? I mean, I guess to me, I mean, I, I wish that Christmas wasn't a big deal, you know, I, or rather I wish that there were a secular winter holiday because I think it's nice when it's dark and cold to have some sort of holiday that involves light and, and warmth. And, and everybody getting together. But and that's the, pretty much the origin of Christmas, right? Absolutely. I mean, Christian, Christian promulgators in Europe found a native solstice Festival, tradition yeah. and they said, okay, we'll take that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what the Catholic Church did all over the world with right. everything. They were just like, yeah, that's ours now. And it was very effective. And it, yeah, and it works it great. It is very effective. <laughs> and that's the other thing about Hanukkah. You know, I mean, Christmas, the trappings of Christmas, okay, somebody's traveling and it's winter and it's cold and they have to be in this cold barn and, and then there's Santa Claus and the North Pole. Uh, okay, well, like, this is a different story. Right, Randor. Yeah, we, but all that stuff is just smooshed together. I mean, sure. if, you're, if you're not a Christian, it's all exactly equal. These are the components of Christmas. And Hanukkah is what? We had a military victory and some light burned for a while. You see that as, as it's less compelling. It's less compelling, especially if you live in a cold place. I mean, we were in Michigan, so all the whole North Pole thing was just like, yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> but- <laughs> yeah, in California, I was like, snow, what's, what's, yeah, uh, what's yeah, that? Yeah, it would be different. It would be different here, I have to say. But yeah, I just it's just not as good a story. A thing. It's just not as good a thing, no. I mean, I think that the the Christmas traditions that are good, I mean, I guess gift giving is is from the Magi giving gifts to the baby Jesus, supposedly, which is a central part of Christmas. But like, you know, the Christmas tree and the the food that's involved has nothing to do with religion. It's all from... Northern Europe somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Or or it's been grafted on in modern times with some sort of version of Santa Claus. But the grafting is universal. I mean, Hanukkah has all sorts of things grafted onto it. And now there's Kwanzaa, which is invented of whole cloth. So, I mean, I don't really have any problem with that. But if, if I were picking one, I like the one with the Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> what did you feel about Santa Claus as a child? Um, mostly... You know, that, you know, thinking about Santa Claus, we weren't allowed to sing Christmas carols at school. We had to sit there with our mouths shut. I talk about making your kid feel terrible. Anyway. Um, I mean, they should just let you sing the stupid songs. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus Christ. They do, yeah, some of them. Well, some of them do, but the ones about Santa Claus don't. Mm. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. But anyway, that was the deal. You know, oh, you can't sing that stuff. And you know, and, and then Santa Claus. I, don't, I never quite... I mean... <laughs> Mainly, it was a thing where if you if you desired to have that thing, it made you feel a little weird and guilty. That mm. was one of the things that turned up on the Day of Atonement. I was I was longing for Christmas. Wow! You know? How about that? That's crazy. Well, not really. No, no. I mean, it makes perfect <laughs> sense. It's just something I'd never yeah, thought so, about. Before. So it's just a thing that when you started thinking about it, you just turn your thinking away from it and say, "Uh huh." I <laughs> kind of had a similar experience of Santa Claus in that because I had been raised to like just believe what I was told and and ignore evidence um, that I believed in Santa Claus for like a really long time, like way past the time when it was appropriate. Oh, do you mean did I ever think there was a Santa Claus? No, no, no. But I mean, I mean, my experience of Santa Claus also involved 
turning your mind turning away my from, thinking yeah. away from it yeah did you ever like tell a kid at school that santa wasn't real I didn't have the kind of relationship with kids at school where that sort of opportunity would come up. Fair. <laughs> As I recall. But, you know, the other funny thing was shortly, I think shortly before my experience of being told I had the wrong um, gender to be a rabbi, I realized that I had been brought up to think that God was a man in the sky and he had a beard and he had really nice pectorals. <laughs> And he wore like draperies. I I concur with everything except I never thought about God's pecs. Definitely thought of a man in the sky with beard and draperies. Never thought about his, his muscular. But he's never a skinny little guy. I mean, he's like a guy with big shoulders and a big chest and he's sitting on his throne and his hands, you know, are like, they're not little pianist hands or, or big pianist hands. They're like workman hands. They're like, like giant hands. Uh, and I just, I mean... This the, is what your rabbis taught you? <laughs> not in words and uh-huh. not explicitly, but that's the picture. If somebody says God, to this day, I think of that man up there on the clouds in a giant stone throne on top of clouds, mm-hmm. wearing sort of a toga thing mm-hmm. that doesn't actually cover his gym muscles. <laughs> that is very... I, my visual picture of God is a lot less developed than yours. You mean uh, d- developed in what way? I mean, I just kind of vaguely picture a, a face and a beard. Uh, you just, don't think he shredded like lettuce? I just never thought about the rest of him. It's just mainly the Isn't beard. Doesn't have abs like a Ninja Turtle in your vision of it? Not particularly. Mm-hmm. He totally does in mine. And I don't know where this comes from. Maybe there's like Italian Renaissance art. Yes, there yeah. is. I'm yeah, sure. there's, I'm sure there's plenty. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably where it comes from. Sometimes but, um, you even see a little ripped baby Jesus. That's true. <laughs> oh, that's creepy. Yeah. But oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It is creepy. <laughs> but You're that right. was a very strange realization. You know, when, when was that? That was 19, maybe 65. So feminism was starting to pop up and people were thinking about things they didn't think about before. And, and I'm thinking, God is a man in a toga? How did that get in my head? <laughs> a fair question. I mean, I mean, I guess one of the things I've said before on this podcast is like kind of the problem with monotheism is that it's always a male. If there's only one God, it's always a male. Yeah. And for some reason, even if you say, Oh, it's, you know, God doesn't actually have a gender or a body. God is is omnipresent, whatever. But somehow we still always have to say he, and if we don't, we get in big trouble. Yes, and besides which, who can imagine a thing without a body that's omnipresent? It would, it would not be the anthropomorphized God of the Bible. Bingo. First yeah. of all. Yes. He acts like a man. He totally, he totally acts, <laughs> he like, acts a like an abusive man. Yes, yeah. he acts like an abusive man. So it's really no problem for me to imagine that, which made it much easier to walk away from. My goodness. You're a musician. What was the music of Hanukkah like? Really? Stirring? Beautiful? No. Really, really simple-minded and really, really stupid. Um, here's the one I learned in school. It, uh, it was dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. I need you out of play. <laughs> and when you're dry and ready, then dreidel, I will play. Oh, dreidel. Yeah. There's that. That's and there's, the only Hanukkah song I know. Well, oh, and of Hanukkah, course. Oh, Hanukkah, a festival of joy with presents <laughs> and with gelt and shit for every girl and boy. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. I don't know. That's right. <laughs> but it's really dumb. 
Yeah, that kind of thing. And they were all the stuff that we sang, I'm guessing, was invented in the United States in the early 1950s. Hmm. And then stuff started coming out of Israel um, in sort of the middle 50s and early 60s. And it was even more rah-rah and ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they just specialized in the most saccharine rah-rah. From what I read, early Israel adopted Hanukkah very heavily because it was like a warrior holiday and because it was about nationalism. It was about retaking the temple from invaders and stuff like that. And so it supposedly resonated very, I don't know, personally, obviously, but supposedly resonated a lot with early um, Israelis. Maybe the the American version is actually better. (laughs) Maybe it's better if it's more anodyne. I can't imagine. I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. Um, do you remember any of the Israeli songs that... You know, I don't. I'm sorry. I remember a few to do with uh, Tubi Shavat and a few to do with Purim, but not Hanukkah. What was music like generally? Oh, yes. It, well, it was pretend Christian in my, really? in my synagogue. Yeah, there was an organ and oh, there was a regular no. singer and also a cantor. Okay. But they didn't sing, um, the cantor didn't sing the prayers. He sang, well, he sang, I guess he sang a few prayers as listening pieces. Mm-hmm. But mostly it sounded just like Protestant hymns. It was really, really denatured. And then at, at bar and bat mitzvahs, there was klezmer. Okay. Well, klezmer sounds at, at least fun. I guess, but for me, it was just embarrassing. Oh, okay. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Klesmer I mean, hadn't come back around. I mean, the, really, the swing revolution of the nineties, <laughs> I think, is, is what you'll find that really made Klesmer cool again. I mean, it was sort of Beatles and folk music, and and Motown and Flint. Motown was oh, what of you course, listen and Flint, to. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but Klesmer, oh my god! But like at a at an event, Klesmer seems well. Old ladies dance to it. You know, the old people dance to it. Okay, and the bar mitzvah boy sat there looking like. How soon can the DJ start? Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, nothing nothing makes something less appealing when you're a kid than old people dancing to it. Yes. That's just death. It is death. Yeah. And plus, there was always some singer, you know, those big fruity kind of singers. I don't even know how to describe it. They're like... <laughs> and they're making faces and mugging, and it's just awful. I'm uh, not. I'm not. I'm not aware of that uh, stereotype, but it sounds. Oh, sorry. It sounds great. Yeah, people loved it. If there <laughs> were over sixty, people loved it. Now you have recently been playing Sephardic music. Yes, and even some klezmer. Even some klezmer. I know. Uh, please it comes, don't. It comes don't. full circle. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you've also played a lot of Arabic music. Yeah, you played kanun. Um. Can you first of all? Can you describe what a kanun is? Because I'm sure most of our listeners won't know. Because I certainly didn't know. Sure, it's a kind of zither, which is a kind of harp that you can only reach the strings on one side. It's kind of like an auto harp with no auto, or it's kind of like the insides of a piano laid on your lap to play with picks. Great, that's very. I'm looking at your kanun <laughs> right now. Almost as if she's been asked it hundreds <laughs> of times. And that before. was the perfect description of it. Um, how are you enjoying playing Sephardic and Klezmer music then? Are you playing the kanun for Klezmer music? I am, and I know how ridiculous that sounds. Because um, it's an Arabic instrument. Well, Arabic or Turkish, but anyway, okay. Middle Eastern. Okay. And not Northern European. Got it. Um, how am I enjoying it? 
Um, the Sephardic music I'm enjoying because it has a sort of small flavor of Spain and, and the Mediterranean. And the klezmer I'm enjoying because of the technical challenge. It's massively unsuited for my instruments, so I have to <laughs> I have to work very hard to do it. Great. <laughs> I remember you told me when that when you were young, at some point, your synagogue switched from a an Ashkenazi, an Ashkenazi rabbi, rabbi to a Sephardic rabbi. To a Sephardic rabbi. Yes, we did. It was very traumatic for us Hebrew school students because the pronunciation is different. <gasps> What's what's the difference in pronunciation? Um, Shabbos is Ashkenazi and Shabbat is, I mean, is the other way around. Ashkenazi and Shabbat is uh, Sephardic. Misrahi, you know, uh, Middle Eastern. Yeah, and all, all, several letters, Hebrew letters and lots of vowels shifted. Whoa. So it was really funny because the rabbi would say the prayers that we knew by heart and they would sound different. Whoa. That would be <laughs> like seismic. That That's like a small change but it has such a huge effect it has a huge effect especially when you're going for this sort of hypnotic religious you know familiar mumbo jumbo thing and if somebody's mumbo jumbo sounds different it's like well is it different yeah (laughs) wow but it was interesting you know it was interesting in, in in a similar way because i had never really thought about that i mean not in hebrew in english i had because my father was a southerner and my mother was from new york and they, did they both have accents? They did when they were among other people from the same place. Mm. Most of the time it was smoothed out and you didn't hear it. But if my father got among Southerners, he would just fall into yeah, it. Look, on my dad's side, both my grandparents are from the South and have, have heavy Southern accents. And then on my mom's side, my grandma's from Brazil. So definitely was aware of heavy accents from yeah, but a young so, age. So you're aware of it in English. In but English. it's very weird to hear it you know, applied in yes. another language and and to perceive it yes yeah. um and i mean when i was growing up i learned spanish in school you know and mainly learned mexican pronunciation because we're in california and uh then i remember hearing like puerto rican and cuban spanish for the first time and being like what is this <laughs> like you know like i was aware that spain had a different accent and i was aware that you know there was a slightly different accent in like peru or whatever but like when i heard caribbean spanish i was like how can I be expected to understand this? This makes no sense. <laughs> but yeah, hearing that in, in church or in like service where kind of the, the whole deal is that it's the syllables just sound the same and you don't know precisely what they mean or you're not. You can stop thinking about that. Yeah. You can just think about the sound. And think about the poor Catholics who suddenly had to hear mass in English. Yeah. I know, right? All this Good stuff that they've been heavens. sitting through. All this time without having to worry about Just it. Just like zoning out in the yeah. Latin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now they have to actually pay attention. Well, they don't have to, but they're offered the opportunity to. Some of them can't turn it down. Speaking of Catholics, I remember a story you told me about when Vatican II was passed. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. This is funny because, okay, so my mom was raised Catholic and, and has, you know, only great things to say about Vatican II because... You know, it, it made the church more tolerant. It put things in English. It made it more accessible. And so to her, it's like, yeah, that was that was a really positive development in the church. Oh, I think it probably was. Mm-hmm. But but what happened is the year of that, all these little Catholic kids would come up to me and they would say, oh, I forgive you for killing Christ and I can play with you now. And the first time that happened, I said, what? What did I kill? You forgive me for something? Who are you anyway? You know, just like, what? <laughs> Were you not even aware of that stereotype? 
Um, yes. But I, one more time, I mean, I have this real difficulty in my mental makeup is that I can perfectly well understand the theory of something and the abstraction of it, but the idea that this is going to apply to me of course, is just completely alien. I think that's universal yeah. to, to people. I mean, it's the same thing. I knew women couldn't be rabbis. Mm-hmm. I knew that women were a kind of speaking livestock who had limited duties, you know, but I had no idea they thought I was one of those. Uh-huh. You know, it was just like... <laughs> so it was the same thing. Yeah, I knew. People blamed Jews for killing Christ, and some people still do, but I had no idea that how could it possibly apply to you when it was you know, 2,000 years ago? Right. Yeah. Why would some little kid be coming up to me about this? Right. Yeah. So it was just this very strange year because it, it was it was repetitive, you know. Mm. And I don't think I mentioned it at home maybe the first four or five times it happened. And then I finally said, you know, kids are coming up to me and saying they forgive me for killing Christ. And I just remember my father got so angry. He was reading a newspaper and he just slapped it down on a table and left the room. Whoa. And my mom said, oh, don't pay any attention, dear. I was just like, okay, that helped. Yeah, it's very. (laughs) When when you're a child and you bring a problem to your parents, that's what you really want to see. Anger (laughs) and leaving the room. Yeah, you want to see either just completely disengaging or completely disengaging in a different way. (laughs) Well, what could they say? I don't know. It's pretty tough. Fair. I mean... I think that means we've probably exhausted the potential Hanukkah content. Now that we're talking about Christ killing. For this particular episode. Oh, yeah. So I think it's about time we wrap up the show. Okay. To that end, as is tradition, we will rate the book, although this is not a book. So we'll we'll talk about rating the story. Mama, how would you rate (laughs) this story? I would give it one out of 144 flasks of consecrated oil. Wow. Wow. Possibly the lowest score ever given on the show. Wow. <laughs> uh, please, uh, please elaborate <laughs> on your rating. Military history as a holiday. <clears throat> and then. So, so you're not a fan of Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> not particularly. Fourth of July? <laughs> not at all. Okay, um, well, at least she's not, consistent. <laughs> not my thing, really. Um, and then trying to patch it together with some sort of feeble miracle about oil. Who needs an oil miracle? Huge slam. Sorry. Huge slam. <laughs> slam on Hanukkah out of nowhere. Uh, uh, I'm going to give it... I'm just... I'm I'm going to be a little more generous. I'm going to give it four out of eight menorah candles, not counting the shamash. Thank you. Um, I she think... keeps counting the shamash. <laughs> and I keep saying, don't do it. I think it's... I think it's fine. Uh, it's it's at least an action-packed story. It has a plot. Uh, I can't really speak to the uh, cultural ramifications of it, but um, I liked playing with the dreidel when I was young. Uh, the gelt was good when I was young. I bet it's the worst quality chocolate, and I would oh, never... wretched. I would never deign to eat it now, but... And, like, half of it was... Was like white when you got it out of the actual. Oh, guilt, is that right? old, old, that old ass chocolate? Yeah. Mm. and it was really waxy. I don't know what they put in that. I do stuff, remember but... it being very waxy. But you know, when I was like seven, I was like, "Hell yeah, chocolate!" Yeah, <laughs> right. It also is kind of fun to unwrap in that I, certain kind. I of did like chocolate. to unwrap yeah, it. Okay. Yes, shiny chocolate, and then fold up the the little halves of the foil into little shapes. 
Uh, Nico, what would you give this story? I'm going to give it three out of eight candles. What? You you got to redo yours. I already took candles. I think it's only appropriate. <laughs> okay. Nobody okay. can take candles. Candles, you know, that's yeah, they the last, whole thing. Yeah, they last uh, as long as you need them to. That's right. It's fine. Um, <laughs> it's fine. I think there are probably, I mean, there are many better holidays on the Jewish calendar that's already. It's kind of a loser on that um, scope. A bunch of the additions, you know, the sort of the hallmark commercialism of giving a gift every day is very silly and very American and late capitalist and mm. is pretty reprehensible. Um, that's not really what we're judging here, though. Sure. Those are just the, those are just the things that I'm bringing to it. But like you said, Mama, the story itself of a group of military guys winning a big battle. Military and from, guys. And from the perspective of the Seleucids, they're terrorists. Yes. Well. Yeah. Yeah. From my perspective, the Jedis are evil as well, <laughs> I think is what you'll find. Um, uh, same. Hard same. <laughs> so it does. It's never, it never really did anything for me. I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed it with you, you know, yeah. lighting candles and saying a little prayer. That was the only, still the only like Hebrew prayer that I have in my head for, there what, you go. for whatever that's worth. And I think I, re- I think I repeated it to you at some point and you were like, what is your Hebrew pronunciation? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. That's how my mom taught it to me. <laughs> I bet your mom's pronunciation was flawless. Oh, I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> I bet. I mean, I bet it was better than mine. Did you not learn the four questions for Passover? Manishtana halayla hazeh. You didn't learn that. Not as such. No. Oh, interesting. Good. I completely preserved you from religion. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, you did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that does it. I think we've rendered our judgment. Hanukkah will never be the same because we've investigated. Yeah, we've rocked the world of Hanukkah, mm-hmm. um, and we can we can leave it at that. There's nothing more for us to say. Agreed. Except, Mama, do you have anything that you'd like to promote? Where can any, people find you online? Any websites That's what that we people ask all our guests? Oh, I'm a remarkably ill-documented artist and musician. <laughs> it, I, I would like to promote Passover as an excellent holiday with an excellent story. It's great. Okay. <laughs> Passover.org. Check it out. <laughs> Visit your local Chabad to learn more. <laughs> P.S. Nico tried to go on Chabad.org today to look up stuff about Hanukkah, and it wasn't uh, online. Was it just down, or was it down for the Sabbath? We don't know. I think their website might be down on the Sabbath every week, but I don't know. I have no proof yet. Probably isn't. Maybe it'll be down tomorrow for Erev Hanukkah. Maybe it will. Who knows? But then all the people desperately looking for information about Hanukkah... Too late. From Chabad.org, the <laughs> primary <laughs> education tool online. You can also go to myjewisheducation.com if you oh, want Oh, yeah, to. that's a great one. Yeah. We've been to that one a lot. Um, anyway, you can follow the show on Twitter at at sunschooldrop. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren E. O'Neill. O'Neill spelled with an A like uh, the ones in Hanukkah. Uh, did we have anything that started with an A? Dreidel? Menorah? No. It's spelled with an A. Um, you could also buy this co-edited anthology that that I did with my friend Chrissy Stroop. Uh, it's called Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. You can find it on Amazon or request it at your local bookstore. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Nico Bakulich. N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-H. Um, if you want to buy me a present, you can do so by going to NicoBakulich.com and clicking on music. There's a link there to buy a record that I released just a couple months ago. You should buy it eight times, one for each night of Hanukkah. Ah. You should buy it once for yourself and then once for seven of your friends. <laughs> In the spirit of giving. <laughs> if you'd like to send us mail, you can do so by emailing contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. That's contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol, not .com. .com is, of course, where all of the Seleucids that got kicked out of Jerusalem are still hanging around. Long dead, but ornery as heck. They're angry. They're still angry. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be super nice, you can go on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts or really any other and leave a review. Just leave, you know, five stars. Well, nine out of nine Hanukkah, menorah, candles, including the shamash this time. Wow. Amazing amounts of growth <laughs> over this episode. I feel like we've been on a huge journey uh, <laughs> and I'm exhausted. And it's time to go to sleep. We'll be back in a little while. Hope to see you in the new year in person or astral projecting into my bedroom, as ye often do. <laughs> Hoxameach and uh, pleasant travels to all the, the droppers out there. We'll see you on Sunday. Bye. Bye.